We are back with Converge for Change, the Business of Social Justice podcast. My name is Nia Davis, and I'm excited to not only welcome you to today's show, but also tell you about our guest joining Takima for another live episode. The first guest is Dr. Jennifer Sandoval. Dr. Sandoval is an associate professor at the Nicholson School of Communication and Media at the University of Central Florida. She has a PhD in communication and culture from the University of New Mexico and a master's of dispute resolution from Pepperdine School of Law. She is interested in the communication of marginalized identity in various contexts. Her research focuses on the communicative elements involved at the intersection of identity, the body, and health. Dr. Sandoval works with a wide range of organizations, enhancing their capacity to communicate across difference and difficulty. Additionally, her scholarship examines policy language, structural inequity, and the use of narratives in moving change forward. Dr. Sandoval is currently a faculty fellow for inclusive excellence in faculty excellence. She also serves as the assistant director of inclusive culture at the Nicholson School. The second guest for today's show is me. I recently joined the Converge team in April 2021 as the Dean of Converge College. I bring over 20 years of nonprofit consulting and college faculty and leadership experience to my new role. I'm a New Orleans native and have served nine colleges and universities and received numerous awards for my research and service. Here at Converge, I oversee the development and implementation of education and training strategies to educate, equip, and empower leaders to become equity and social justice centered in their work. I received my bachelor's degree from the Louisiana State University, a master's degree from the University of New Orleans, and I'm currently earning a doctorate in executive leadership at the University of Holy Cross. In my free time, I can be found of service to my beloved New Orleans community through board leadership and also as a systems disruptor for affordable housing and Black business growth through various speaker engagements, written and digital formats. So now let's get into this show. Season three, episode two, Words Matter. All right, everyone, we have a special show today. Thank you to all who are joining us um, on IG Live or Facebook Live or those who may later be listening to this recording on the podcast. We have a very special show today. Shout out to our partners at Do East. Do East Partners are sponsoring today's show. And today we're doing something a little bit different. Um, so before I introduce our guest, we want to play a clip from a recent conversation I had with Lauren Maddox from Do East Partners. Lauren and I are old buddies in this work of social justice. And we got together and talked a little bit about some of the pain points we're having as practitioners and really felt like today we could bring an expert in to inform our practice. So before we jump into the conversation, we're gonna play a quick clip from my conversation with Lauren Maddox from Do East Partners. So Lauren, picking up really quickly, on this point about how are we challenging people to go deeper? I wanted you to sort of expand, you know, the ideas that you were talking about a little further. Great. Um, one of the key ways that we're seeing it work in this environment, because everything is in motion, there's so much flush, flux and so much change, is really spending time talking about, you know, shared aspirations and, and vision, and really trying to create a picture, a new picture of what people want instead. And just spending some time on that one for one, it gives people hope. People desperately need hope right now. And so having that picture of the future that they want instead is so powerful, but also it's a great um, point of cohesion. It brings people together around some of these tough issues and they realize they actually have more of shared aspirations and, and goals than they are dissimilar. So I would just say vision, spending a lot of time rethinking, reimagining vision would be important. 
I think that's an important point and one that we really can't emphasize enough. We at Converge talk about radical imagination, the need to imagine a new future, right? Which means we have to like create things that we've never seen before, um, which really does reconnect us to this conversation about language. How do we imagine a future we don't even have language for? But I think what you're talking about is also this idea of grace. How do we give each other grace in that journey, in that space of reimagining as we create the new language for the new world we want to create? So I really appreciated that point and felt like, um, you know, as I get ready to jump into this conversation about language that we really sort of grounded it there. I, I really do appreciate that. Thanks again, Lauren. Thanks. All right. So that whole conversation with Lauren uh, about reimagining um, the future and those of us who do the work and our facilitators and are supporting nonprofits as they, again, reimagine the future, really brought us to this piece around language. And so I'm really excited today to continue the conversation about language and about practice. Today I have with me Dr. Jennifer Sandoval, language expert and associate professor at the Nicholson School of Communication and Media at the University of Central Florida. Uh, Dr. Sandoval and I actually met through the Planned Parenthood Network um, as we're both trustees in different spaces. Um, and I'm really, really happy to have you here and to illuminate us with your expertise in the area of language. And I also have with us today, Nia Davis, who is the very new Dean of Converge College. And we all get to be in this conversation together. So Nia and Jen, uh, welcome to the, the podcast and to the live. <laughs> Thank you, super excited to be here. Awesome. Hey Nia, can I hear you? Make sure I can hear you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. All right, we might need to get you to turn your mic up a little bit. You're not necessarily coming through, but I think we could probably get that fixed pretty quickly. Um, so excited to have you, Dr. Sandoval. And I just played this clip that I have with Lauren. And like I said, Lauren and I have been in this work as practitioners, um, doing a lot of coalition building. Some people call it collective impact work, um, but really bringing together various organizations in, in different cities all over the country to address the most salient issues in our communities. And I think what one she and I were talking about is, you know, in this new phase of the work, post George Floyd particularly, right, the work is, is changing rapidly. And as practitioners, as facilitators, as consultants, you know, just some of the things that we are observing and running into. And when she brought up this issue of language, do we even have the language to do this work together? Um, you and I had met through the Planned Parenthood Network and I felt like you were the right expert to bring onto the podcast. So thank you for being here. Um, as a place to just sort of jump into the conversation, can you tell us a little bit about your work and your academic research around language? Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting to hear it come up in all of the different spaces over and over again. It's probably the thing that I talk about most with organizations that I work with as a practitioner outside of my academic space. But as a communication scholar, I am very interested in the power of words and in that imagining of a language that we don't have yet and the power of the language that we have now that we didn't used to have. Because my work is really centered on how does identity show up? How does who we are and how much we are able to bring or not bring our full authentic selves into working and learning spaces show up in communication, right? And I've looked a lot at embodied communication and the way that we perform identity and the way that we negotiate identity in these spaces. And I talked to a lot of folks, particularly minoritized folks, and there's an example of language, right, that has evolved and shifts and people always have questions about it. I'm sure we'll get into it. Um, but particularly how that shows up in that negotiation with the dominant structures and that kind of double consciousness and that code switching that so many of us engage in based on context and relationship and really focusing on how do we create spaces where people can feel whole in their communication and where we can actually move towards a more just 
experience at work and in school, particularly for um, kind of the context that I work in, but it's, it's a challenge for lots of folks. Absolutely. Nia, I just wanna make sure we can test your mics and you can be fully engaged. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, 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 we got you. Sure. Well, I'll jump in this, with the first question, Nia, and then you can come in after me. But it might be good to take a step back, Dr. Sanibola, take a step forward. I'd love to know about you and what led you to this work? How did you get to this um, sub, you know, uh, area of study within communications? What informed your journey? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, have had a career path that is maybe a series of happy accidents. It's not where I ever thought I would be, uh, but there are so many parts about it that I love. And I really had always been interested in language, but very much in the area of policy and law. And I always thought I would go to law school and that I would be a practicing attorney and, you know, change the world within the system and kind of that um, what I look at now is a little bit of a naive perspective of a young person uh, looking at how they're going to make social justice a part of a meaningful career and one that could actually be, you know, materially successful in ways that your family always hopes um, for many of us uh, across those generational shifts in education levels. And as I started working in dispute resolution and conflict and some other areas, the ability to share understanding just kept showing up, right? Why do we see ourselves in these spaces? So I did a master's in dispute resolution at a law school, worked with some folks who said they worked in the shadow of the law for a while. And I just kept seeing communication at the center of everything and continued to be interested in that. Eventually did go back for my doctorate in culture and communication because there was also so many differences in terms of how folks have been socialized to understand language and how much we take for granted about using particular language or words and just assuming, well, yeah, we're all on the same page here. Surely this is so basic that we all know exactly what's going on and we all know what we're talking about. And especially in some of the contexts that I work with clients in healthcare, you know, these spaces that are just rapid fire work, you don't have time to pause, places like Planned Parenthood that have a lot of external pressures and crises, that reflective engagement and the ability to pause and say, check for understanding became something that I just saw emerge over and over again. And so really, I just wanted to merge the intersections of those interests and my own experience and working with a lot of college students across cultural and racial identities um, with various language, um, you know, proficiencies in a college setting and how that shows up and how college tends to be this um, reinstitution of colonial practices around language and how this notion of rigor and all of these things that were just challenging me as I was being trained into this space where I just thought that's not that's not how I want to teach. That's not how I want to connect with folks. We need to have more space for more ways of communication. And slowly that's just kind of continued to lead me to really cool conversations with folks and organizations and conversations like this that just really get me excited. Awesome. Well, we're actually gonna play another clip from my conversation um, with Lauren before we come back, but I'm really excited to talk more about the Academy too, right? Especially in this racial reckoning moment, we know that the Academy has been the place where a lot of this language has been defined and codified and so we'll get right back to that. I'm sure Nia wants to pick up on that. So we're going to play another clip from the conversation with Lauren, and then we'll begin our conversation about how this um, informs practitioners. All right. Welcome to Converge for Change, the Business of Social Justice podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have with us our first sponsor my friend lauren maddox with due east partners and so hey lauren how are you hey takima glad to be here with you 
I'm so happy you're here. Happy to have you all as a sponsor um, and send thank you to Bess as well. Dewey's Partners is a woman-owned business that is all about growth and sustainability, inclusive collaboration, and enduring equitable impact. They blend three decades of experience in strategic planning, organizational development, movement building, and collective impact to creatively solve even the most complex social and environmental challenges. We're really, really ha uh, happy that you sponsored uh, today's episode and want to jump into the conversation. Lauren, you and I have known each other in this work for a really long time. And I don't know about you, but this past year has been pretty exhausting. Continuing to hold this work in the middle of a pandemic and also in the middle of so much social unrest in our country and in the world. And so I you know, want to just kind of kick our conversation off. Um, what are you seeing in the work? What's changing in your engagements and in the environments that you all are working in? Well, first of all, shout out to, to Kima and Converge. We love what you do, and you are one of the great change leaders in this work. So it's just a pleasure to sort of bask in your glow. <laughs> um, but we, we probably like you are seeing a lot of change, a lot of flux, and with that, uh, a lot of emotion and a lot of anxiety that people are bringing to the work. So some of it's good. It's like, you know, we're trying to shake some things up that need to be shaked up or shaken up. But it also is, you know, everything is on the table for being redefined, everything. So our language, uh, you know, sort of shared terminology, our structures, our systems, That's how we right. work, our relationship with work, it's all being reimagined. So, um, that's kind of our big thing is we're just seeing it and we, we say to clients all the time and they say wow that's really true it feels is it feels like we're planning in quicksand because yeah. the second yeah. we get going it's like whoop, the, the floor moves out from underneath you so that's that's what we're experiencing and just trying to sort of have compassion for ourselves and others in this work yes, yes. friend that is um, we're definitely mirroring that back in a lot of the work that we're doing here. I think you mentioned it, this piece about language and how quickly language is changing in this space, right? Like the language has yet to keep up with, you know, the movement uh, work. And so I know that's definitely one of the things that we're always sort of digging deeper at Converge and really trying to make sure we're staying abreast of, you know, some of those changes because language we know is also an expression of, you know, our politics. Um, and so doing this work in social justice, we really want to make sure that we're um, sort of deeply uh, rooted in how we word things and in our language and what meaning we bring to it. So I thank you for lifting that up. It's definitely something we're experiencing. And I know later on, what folks will experience in the podcast, um, we're going to be talking to um, a professor who actually uh, whose work in uh, theory is actually rooted in the evolution of language. So tell me a little bit about how are you dealing with this? How are y'all adapting your practices? What have you all had to change? Um, you know, definitely love to hear about how you all are even thinking about your own self-care for your team. Oh, thanks. Well, the, everything. I, I would say, you know, really trying to be more intentional about relationship building. And this point on language is, is spot on, because I think if you and I were in a conversation and I said something that you're like, hey, Lauren, I'm not really loving the way you talked about that. Like we've been working alongside each other and together for long enough that you would, I think, feel comfortable saying that to me. And I would be like, oh, gosh, OK, what do we, you know, how do I need to shift that? But when you don't have those relationships built and the language isn't there, then it's like everybody's sort of walking on eggshells around each other. And we've seen this a lot, um, especially in the collaborative work where and then people, you know, bringing their own assumptions and um, energy about language as well. Um, you know, when when somebody uh, you know, says something they don't like or that, that they don't identify with and then they offer something else. Sometimes we've noticed sometimes it can kind of spiral out into like everybody sort of piles on and it and it's probably healthy in terms of a release of energy, but it feels like we'd never get to a place. So I'm, I can't wait to listen to this podcast and about the evolution of language and actually get some techniques because we need them. <laughs> yeah, I think the, one of the techniques that I definitely um, hold true is to continue to learn, 
I mean, the language is always evolving. You know, even for me, the term BIPOC was something took me a while to come to, you know, in terms of wanting to describe myself in those terms. And so, you know, I'm still very much in relationship to all of these words, still trying to stay, you know, abreast. And then I think holding the value that when it comes to language, it is a very, very political thing. And folks have the right to sort of to define, you know, what they will be called, what they will be referred to, and sort of the language that describes their experience. And so, you know, I think just really, you know, being learners. So I'm excited as well to engage in this podcast interview um, and learn more alongside you all about, you know, how language is evolving um, and some things to keep in mind. Well, lastly, I just kind of want to thank you for be he- for being here with us. Um, and as we leave, you know, talk a little bit to us about what you all are doing to challenge people in this moment. How are you uh, helping people to move beyond, you know, places where they may be stuck in this work, especially in this place of flux and anxiety you talked about? Yeah, probably the biggest thing we're doing is we are way slowing down. The pace at which we used to do this work is not possible right now because everything, as we said, is in flux. And in that kind of swirling environment, just as human beings, we're not wired to do that uh, very long. It takes a lot of uh, energy from all of us. And so you can't expect people to move quickly. So you've really got to, you know, I think we're finding needing to set time for community building, for conversation, for trust building, um, and just um, getting at sort of shared goals and aspirations and experiences and trying to find, kind of connect to our shared humanity and spending more time doing that before you try and kind of, okay, now let's get to the the planning work because it just, there's no way to do that without, uh, in this environment, especially without, probably there never was, but particularly in this environment. So we, you know, we say to people, just really make sure that you're open and transparent and listening and learning. But then, you know, if you make mistakes along the way, which we do on a daily basis, you know, own it, acknowledge it, make amends and learn from it um, and then keep moving because um, but just try not to push the pacing beyond which, you know, I think people can really go at this point. All right. So thanks uh, for thanks again to our partners at Dewey's Partners um, for that conversation and really bringing us to to this discussion today. Um, so as we jump back into the conversation with you, um, Dr. Sandoval, I want to invite Nia to talk a little bit about some of the challenge we're, challenges we're experiencing here at Converge and our partners at Dewey's and really in kind of engage you in what you're seeing um, emerge as particular as potential uh, ways to support the work that we're doing. So Nia? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So excited to be talking with you all today. And so Dr. Sandoval, what we are experiencing in our work, and as you know, we are, our work is in uh, equity and uh, we help navigate people uh, and organizations in particular to help move the needle, right? So here you have, you've identified this is a priority, but now we help you to operationalize and insert that within your work. And part of that is education, part of that is facilitation, part of that is coaching. So it's kind of a trifecta approach to which we take to to the work that we do. And one of the things that we've started to observe is this connection that people have to some of the language that we use, particularly when we identify white supremacy and we talk about power structures and we talk, and you know from the standpoint of there is an equity that happens. And so you have to have language and name how this inequity came about, right? And who are the people? So there are structures, but these structures are, you know, uh, we, we are socially deriving and creating these structures. So there's this humanistic uh, and this people aspect to that. And so when we bring that up in terms of our, our training and our coaching, you know, there is this, this almost this um, deer in the headlights reaction that happens uh, with our clients in our work when we introduce the term white supremacy as we are making in these navigations. And it is oftentimes debilitating 
for these clients because they have uh, an inability to, to move forward. And so hearing you talk about your work being around identity and communication, I was really excited to hear that because, you know, in my mind, I'm wondering, well, where, what's, what's deeper here? You know, what's, what's lying and where is this connection uh, that people are having personally and uh, in, in this barrier around accepting, accepting this terms, you know, maybe it's, it's them having it, you know, hearing about it from the first time, or maybe it's just not accepting it. And so I'm really curious to hear uh, what suggestions you might have for Converge or our partners at Due East about this work. You know, you mentioned that you, um, you're an academician and you're a scholar, but you're also a practitioner as well. And so, you know, coming from both uh, perspectives, because you have this duality here, that's, that's unique and I'm really curious to hear about what recommendations and suggestions and advice you would give us as we are uh, navigating this work. And we have this goal, we are naming um, and putting language around what's actually ex existing and yet people are, are grappling with, with that language and an identity. So uh, please enlighten us. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> okay. You know, there's just so many things happening in, in that question and in what we're seeing. And I think where I want to start is that one of the things we have to do in our workplaces, in these organizations, in academia is name the resistance, right? Because we're very good at naming, you know, y'all need to know these terms. We need to be more inclusive in our language. Some organizations are better than others about that consistent update, that check-in to say, are we still using, you know, the better and promising terminology? Even that in and of itself, I never talk about best practices in my work because they just don't exist uh, philosophically mm -hmm. for me because what I'm going to be doing five years from now, what somebody who's in one of my classes is going to be doing 10 years from now is going to be so beyond what we can imagine, right? And so it's just, what do we know right now? What is the better, you know, how can we reach toward uh, these spaces where people feel safer because we can't guarantee safety, right? Those kinds of things. So naming the resistance is really where I start. You know, I know you're sitting here saying, oh my gosh, is this really such a big deal? Why do we have to spend 90 minutes with this lady? You know, like this is um, just telling me everything that I'm doing wrong. People always know what I mean. Why do I have to change just because other people are changing? It's too late. Let's just let them be who they are. I hear that so much about, you know, mm -hmm. an organization or an institution for a long time. And I like to remind people that is ageist and ableist. Right. Mm -hmm. A person who can learn. We can all learn our entire lives. Right. And that that is a conversation we can continue to have. And we don't need to say, oh, that person is too old, you know, and my students talk about even conversations with their grandparents. Right. And these generational divides. And I say, oh, does your grandparent have an Right. Because they many of them do. Right. How are they communicating with you on FaceTime? So they can learn things that haven't existed their entire life. We can also change mm -hmm. our language. But I think the toughest resistance is when people shut down and they say, well, I guess I'm just not going to say anything anymore mm -hmm. because they can never get it right. And what we have to do is work on that culture shifting away from a culture of fear about making a mistake to a culture of we make mistakes and we engage in corrective action immediately, right? Mm -hmm. like, conversation to Kimo with Lauren, right? That we, you know, if I hurt someone and they are willing to do the work, offer me the labor and the learning of telling me, I should, you know, apologize. Sorry for the harm. Thank you for the lesson, right? Mm -hmm. Immediately correct yourself. Thanks for the reminder, of course, and then move on. And then the way that you show that it mattered is you don't make the same mistake twice, right? Mm -hmm. That you just continue to grow. This getting defensive, being dismissive, centering yourself. You know, we've all seen people melt down when, you know, they've said that a thing that somebody finds really harmful or the wrong thing. And then now everybody is working to make that person feel better. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of emotional energy going into this space where it's just, it's a mistake. Like Lauren said, we are going to make them every single day. And mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, I get excited by the dynamic nature of language. I think that that's 
so cool, right? That we as human beings and in our communities can consistently redefine our experiences. And naming is how we know that something's important. That's mm -hmm. why we name things. You know, I, in a lot of language studies and in gender studies, we often talk about this example of sexual harassment didn't used to have a name, right? That it was just going to work, right? That was just, it, there wasn't anything separate about that. It was just so expected and so mm -hmm. normalized that there was no name for it. And when somebody said, this is a specific kind of harassment that you shouldn't have to experience in your workplace, that was transformative. And we see that now for folks when you're able to have language that actually expresses your identity, that actually informs people about who you are as a whole human being, that's incredibly powerful. And I think getting at that why is really important in this work. We often focus on the say this, not that kind of piece of it, you know, because that's it's like, well, this is the thing now. So this is what you have to do. Why? Well, because we want to honor the dignity of human beings in their identity, in our spaces. And that's a very different conversation if somebody is actually waking up every day trying to harm others. But that's usually not who we're working with, right? Um, folks want, want to be better and do better and know better. Yeah, I really appreciate that because the language does get really sticky, right? Even with folks with the best of intentions and what you're reminding us of is, and I've been thinking a lot of these past couple of weeks, is the role language plays in colonization and the role it can play in decolonization. Mm -hmm. um, I've been you know, looking at some of this research on the history of non-binary gender terms in language globally and what happened through colonization and how we lost the nuance around gender just because the binary of male-female as a European concept was introduced. So really, really interesting to think about, like, how do we even reclaim language that may have been lost in the process of colonization and use language as a force for decolonizing? So one of the things, though, really specifically, Mia, and you know we deal with this all the time, is our clients' very specific pushback to the term mm -hmm. supremacy. And as the months go by since George Floyd, that resistance is coming up more and more. We find ourselves really having conversations internally, you know, uh, do we censor the comfort of our clients and many times um, who are, are white in these instances around that term to be able to introduce the concept of systemic oppression or is it really important for us to use the word white supremacy? We've decided it's really important for us to use the word white supremacy to name it because it's important to our analysis. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, that resistance um, and the trade off of not being very specific in our language when we name white supremacy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, really showing up in so many spaces, not just with organizations, it's a big deal in the academy too, right? And I applaud your decision. I think it is really important to name it, right? And to continue to push. I think that that is our role as practitioners and educators is to push into discomfort. And I think part of that resistance that I always come back to is, you know, there are types of learning and unlearning that we all have to do. And a lot of folks get really defensive and resistant at the first sign of discomfort. And discomfort is a part of the growth and change process. We often have to be pushed into that. But folks from minoritized backgrounds, right, our BIPOC folks, our queer and trans and non-binary folks who have always had to navigate their own identity in a system that doesn't recognize them, mm -hmm. as many of us have even experienced, already live in kind of constant discomfort through code switching. And folks who are experiencing more privilege in their social location, the first sign of discomfort is like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm all for this, right? Often, you know, 
equity, inclusion, diversity, yes, I know we need to do it, but not if it's going to make me uncomfortable. And that is very different from being pushed into a panic zone of learning or a harmful zone of learning. And we have to be the ones to push people in that space. White supremacy is an uncomfortable term for a lot of people because those of the closer we are to whiteness, the more we benefit from it. And we are so deeply entrenched in our mythologies around meritocracy, around objectivity, around all of these other things that colonization brought us in addition to these binaries, right? Um, that it, it feels like a personal attack to folks. And I think we have to push through that conversation, name that it's discomfort, help people understand, you know, what are you afraid of? When people often talk about what they're afraid of happening in an organization, white folks in particular, you know, an experience not being um, considered for a job. This comes up a lot. I'm sure you see this, right? Oh, well, they're only hiring people of color right now. There's no point in even applying. They're not going to hire a white person. And it's a fear of something that could happen, not of an actual experience. And it's a fear of being treated like a person of color, mm. right? And we have to continue to name that to make it real. That's the power of language, the naming to bring that that reality. Yeah. Indeed, indeed, yes. Thank you so much for that response. You know, um, earlier when you were sharing about your uh, experience and, and what led you to this work, it's Akima mentioned when you started talking about the academy, you know, the hair started going off <laughs> on my arm because of of my own um, uh, experience uh, in in that vein. And so, you know, I applaud you for the for your um, for your work and your pioneering in that effort. And so, I'm really curious about you know. Where now is the state of the academy? You know, as uh, Sakima mentioned, you know, a lot of this work is has been, you know, from the ivory tower perspective of we're going to study and research it, and then you know, here we are on the ground, and then you sit in this dual role, which um, I think uh, is very important to be able to to see it from both lens and those uh, perspectives. And so I'm really curious about like, what are the, what's the conversation happening um, in the academy around uh, language, around uh, equity, around anti-racism and, and, and these terms? Yeah. So we're not far along. It's, we're <laughs> not farther along than any other industry, right? I mean, higher ed is an industry and um, in the same way that when I was young, I thought, you know, law was, how we change, you know, through mm -hmm. through the system. I was like, oh, I'm gonna go work in higher ed. These are gonna be the most enlightened and educated people in the world. It's gonna be fundamentally <laughs> different conversations. Oh, you know, I just think back to younger Jen and just think that was such reckless optimism. And I admire it because I'm probably far too cynical these days. But the the idea that we're farther along is completely, you know, or that we are indoctrinating students mm. with this kind of woke terminology that people are walking out of these classrooms, um, just agreeing to everything that we say is just so far from the reality of what education looks like. Mm -hmm. There are spaces where different conversations are happening. And I do think I want to lift up that point you're making, Nia, about the disconnect, right? Because I think we've seen this very much in uh, disability advocacy and disability rights activism. And that's a space that I think many of us as practitioners have done a bad job of making sure that's in the intersection of everything that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, this conversation about person first versus identity first language for a lot of activists and advocates in the disability space, there's a, a real question about where did the person first language come from? Was mm -hmm. it Posed on disability communities by kind of the scholar space. Where like, Aha, we have an answer to this problem, and then created kind of a one size fits all formula. And then specifically, we've seen the um, you know deaf community, blind community, and autistic communities all say no. Um, at least. Uh, loud majority in the activism space, identity first is powerful and this is why. And that was imposed on us 
And so we're shifting. Asking people, you know, whenever I talk about the principles of inclusive language, I can't give people a glossary, right? That's what everybody wants. Just give me a glossary. What can I say and what can't I say? There's mm-hmm. no magic formula and it's going to change in a month. And there's principles that we can look at. And one of the primary ones is self-identification matters, right? And we have to listen to how people refer to themselves in their own communities and not impose our own understanding. And we should ask people. And as scholars, that is our whole job, right? But I think sometimes we get removed from that space and don't ask people what works, what is meaningful in this space. Mm -hmm. How can we use theory to inform practice, but not impose? It's another form of colonization, right? And certainly knowledge colonization is a big part of higher education in the United States and the Western and Northern hemispheres. That's probably already getting a little too academic, but the, the idea, you know, really is that we need to pay attention to people's experience. And when they're talking about themselves, we have to listen. Mm-hmm. And then we can make really informed decisions about how uh, to be compassionate and present and authentic in those spaces. Absolutely. I mean, I think that some so much of this comes back to the idea of centering the people who are most impacted mm-hmm. by the language, right? Um, and so I'd love to have you just maybe as we, we start to wrap up to expand on some of the other principles that we could take away um, and possibly incorporate in, in our work. So what other principles around inclusive language do you think would be helpful um, for practitioners like Converge and Due East and other folks who are listening to keep in mind as they do this work? Yeah, so certainly I always start with self-identification, right? Um, making sure that we're we're paying attention to that, especially you know these not-for-profit and mission-based organizations that are meant to be community embedded, right? Um, it's important to have representation on your teams from communities and be an actual partnership. But listening to that, the the second principle that I usually really highlight is one that you probably use in all of your work, which of course is impact over intent right that you know this whole idea of well i didn't mean that i didn't mean to hurt somebody's feelings i didn't mean to harm somebody with the words that i'm using for the most part we're giving folks the benefit of the doubt that they don't wake up every day trying to figure out how to use the wrong terminology but the harm that it causes is more important than your good intentions Mm. and well-intentioned people all over the world make really big mistakes that have really big impact and we have to center the impact. It's not that intent doesn't matter at all. It's certainly a different conversation that I have with somebody who is well-intentioned versus somebody who is actively trying to cause harm, but that that impact matters. I think we always have to consider context. You know, I, I, there's just so many different conversations happening at once. I use the example of the Hispanic Latino, Latinx, Latine community, because there's no single Latinidad, as people want to say, and there's huge disagreement within and among our communities about what language is appropriate, what is, you know, positioning the social location of folks in a way from a place of empowerment, from a place of efficacy, and what has been imposed. It's all made up. At the end of the day, I think that's another really important point that I make is we constructed language, we can change it. Mm. The term Hispanic was completely created in essentially government and education contexts in the United States. I have lots of students from South America who are like, I didn't know I was Hispanic until I came here. What does it mean? that this university is a Hispanic serving institution. Mm. It was constructed, your identity can change based on the context that you're in. And that's really important to remember as individuals and as folks talking to people about how to do this. Specificity when we can. That's something that's actually important, right? Don't be totally generic when you don't have to be. If we're talking about a particular community, then we don't have to say Latino, we don't have to say BIPOC, 
right? If we work in a particular space and we're talking about Mexican-Americans, right, we can be specific. There is a difference between Black and African-American. Sometimes we need to use both. Sometimes we don't. And so that specificity can actually be really helpful instead of always trying to be as general as possible. And the last one that I talk about a lot is there's fancier ways of talking about it, but I call it the flip it and reverse it principle, which is really just reflective of my age and musical taste, I think, <laughs> more than anything. Um, but the, the more privilege we have in our social location, the less likely we are to have experienced language that is hurtful. And sometimes the only way to understand that something is not in fact as inclusive as you think is to turn it on the default, the centered, the dominant culture, right? So the, you know, the example we use all the time, it's the most simple and everyone says the hardest to change is you guys, right? Masculine generic that we're just supposed to know includes all genders. Most people say both genders, right? But the, the, this means everyone, it's fine. Like stopping so sensitive is kind of the response we get. But if we were to use a feminine generic, and just say a gals, a ladies, and there were multiple genders represented, folks would literally think we're only speaking to that part of the audience. Mm. You know, it's the same kind of thing when we talk about questions people want to ask. You know, trans folks have been talking forever about how invasive some of the questions are people ask about their identity. If you wouldn't ask that question of a cis person, it's fundamentally inappropriate of a trans right? And so just trying to exercise that empathy muscle in a very specific way that says, if this were put in the default dominant space, does it seem totally absurd? That's a pretty good indication that it's not inclusive or useful in any space. And that's a hard one sometimes. Yeah. Well, I am so thankful that the South gave me y'all. <laughs> Same. Yeah. It solved a lot of that. So thank you to the South for y'all. Um, and thank you, Dr. Sandoval, for being with us. I mean, we've really been wrestling a lot with this. And Laura mentioned in that clip, there is a lot of anxiety. And I know you're experiencing that also as a practitioner. And it comes up around language. Um, and so we're super, super happy that you were able to join us today and uh, enlighten us with your field of study. I'm sure we'll bring you back at some point. Maybe we'll do a do's and don'ts um, with language um, and uh, go over the principles again. Um, because I think your point is it doesn't end there. In 30 days, it will change. And not only that, it is very specific to individuals and individual communities. Um, and so this is really a journey we all have to sign up for. Um, and I appreciate too that the point that you're making about humility, that humility is what's really required to, to, to get this right, because you won't get it right. You have to be humble enough to continue to learn. So thank you for informing us today. But we have a little tradition that we do before we end every podcast. So we have three rapid fire questions. And so I'll ask you and just give us the first thing that comes to mind. It's been kind of cool to collect these and to talk to all the folks that we have um, spoken to to hear their responses. So you ready? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I know you're ready because you gave us some <laughs> and so that's all I need to know about you, right? All right, so the first question is, what is justice? Hmm. You know, that's such a good question because Justice is another one of those words that's getting used and reused in a variety of contexts. And, you know, the very first thing when you say what is justice, I think it's an ever ongoing fight. That is the first place that I'm in. And I think that's really reflective of just the, the work that I'm doing right now and the context that I'm in in Florida and, you know, doing some of this work locally and with organizations that it's it's hard work and it doesn't happen on its own. I think that that's what I always think about. You know, everybody loves that quote from Dr. King that the arc of the universe bends towards justice, but not on its own. We got to bend it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm just always looking for my siblings in the struggle who are pushing to bend it that way with me because it's easier to fight together. 
Absolutely. Well, you found some siblings here at Converge. Um, what is freedom? I think freedom is the capacity to make the choices that we want to make about our own lives. It's autonomy. I think, you know, I've been in the, the reproductive and sexual health rights and justice space for a long time. And I do think that bodily autonomy is a foundation of freedom to get to be in the world without fear of harm. And just there are so many people who don't have that embodied privilege. And until we can share the space of life and joy out here, you know, in the ways that, that we get to exist, uh, there, isn't, there isn't freedom for any of us if some of our siblings in the struggle aren't experiencing that. And what is the one thing that you cannot live without? Mm. So I think what I have learned is that I actually truly can't live without caffeine. I can't do my job without it. It's such a trite thing. I've tried to give it up, you know, you know, not start my day and end my day with it. But it's just even I work in different time zones, talking to lots of different people, teaching as a performance. I've just accepted it. And it's a great example of how there's all the research can answer whatever question you want it to answer. Is caffeine good for you? Sure. You can find the evidence for that. Is it bad for you? You can find it for you. But I'm going to continue to have my coffee ritual. And that's part of my self-care. Build it into my space, moment to breathe. And, you know, something I don't have to fight with. So that's, that's it for sure. Awesome. Right. Well, thank you to Dr. Sandoval. Thank you so much, Tina, our first time. Yes. Um, but we really do appreciate the work that you do, um, your service, of course, with Planned Parenthood and the other organizations you work in. So shout out to the Planned Parenthood Network. And thank you so much for informing us. Um, and we'll be definitely staying in touch with you. Thanks to our friends at Dewey's Partners for sponsoring our conversation um, and all the you shared the principles and this takeaway that we need to approach these conversations with lots of humility to continue to learn. So thank you again for, for your work and for being with us. And thanks to everyone out there who's joined and those who are listening on the podcast. Thank you so much. Absolute joy. Thank you for the work that you all are doing. So important. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. All right, y'all, thank you so much for joining me today. Wherever you are in the world, I want to hear from you. So stop what you're doing right now. No, really, right now. And follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Converge for Change. Now, after you follow me, drop me a line in the comments and let me know what you thought about this show. After that, make sure you subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast platform. We're growing our tribe of social justice warriors, and we want you with us every step of the way. Thanks.